We're back. <laughs> I just said that in the show note that I really wanted to read it. <clears throat> All right, you're ready. Welcome to the Squamates Podcast! This is a totally serious podcast about reptiles and amphibians where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate, and I am joined by my two wonderful co-hosts, Ethan. Ethan Kosak. Uh, I am a cartoonist, illustrator, uh, and general layabout. And Gabriel. And I'm Gabriel Ghetto. I'm a paleo artist, scientific illustrator, and I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. And today, my dear friends, is the 23rd of June, which is exactly one year and one day since the release of our very first episode. So Yay! happy Yay! anniversary to us! Yay! Yay! Huge success. Thank you for sticking with us. Uh, a few statistics since uh, since we started the show. A bajillion people have listened to it. Uh, we've had only five-star reviews except the one person who gave a five-star review but gave it four stars. Um, and, I mean, everybody has just been wonderful. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for a year of being mates with us. Yes. That's... So cool. I think we've all separately um, have received like really good comments from people. So that's awesome. We, absolutely. It's, yes. It's really yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, surreal for me to, you know, in when we were, when I was in uh, Montpellier for the Evolution Congress to have people come up and be like, hey, I listened to the show. And, and yeah. elsewhere, it's just been, it's been so cool uh, to interact with people who are, uh, well, ostensibly fan. I think I mentioned this uh, before, but we, I, when I was doing the reptile show, uh, selling newts, yeah, I had someone come up to me and and uh, and say they were a listener, yep. a lizardner, as it were, a lizardner. Yep, and I've so gotten cool. a lot of emails of people telling me that they listen to the podcast and that they really love it. So it's been awesome. Yeah. And we and we just had a few people email us to break up the monotony of the uh, WordPress updates that are usually filling our uh, email inbox. So yeah, it's it's been great. It's going it's going. I hope that you agree that it's going super well. Um, yeah, we we hope that you're enjoying the show as we develop it and work on it. And uh, obviously, we hope that you stick with us as well and keep listening. Yeah, because and, and that's and, why and, we make it. And people should expect new things to come up soon, right? Absolutely. Yes. Watch this space. Yes. Things will happen. Alrighty. Well, without further ado, let us dive into works in progress. So I'll go first as per the huge. Since the last episode, I've had two new papers published. Uh, both in the, gen the, in the journal Salamandra, which is a German herpetological journal. Uh, everything is published in English because uh, science. And um, the, the first of those two papers is uh, one where I am shared first author with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Andu Rakutuarison, uh, who's actually coming to visit in a week and a half, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, it's about elevational variation within um, Stumphia, these tiny frogs that we described, uh, 26 new species of in 2017. Um, and yeah, we show basically that 
the way that genetics and uh, species assemblages work on this one mountain in the northeast of Madagascar, which is really cool, and also what their relationships are to other uh, species that are found throughout the rest of northern Madagascar. It's actually really interesting insights, and uh, you know, it's going to be the sort of the foundational stuff for other cool research that's going to happen in those groups going forward. So there's that one. And then the other one was by uh, my colleague Jörn Köhler and Co. I'm one of I'm the third of four authors. And it's uh, the description of a new species of Paradura, which are um, the Madagascan ground geckos or big-headed geckos, which listeners may be familiar with from... Um, uh, Pictus geckos or Pict... I mean, it's Paradura Picta, but in America they're often called Pictus geckos or increasingly now Panther Panther geckos. geckos. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, numerous different color forms have now started to emerge in in the pet trade, not just in the States, but also in Europe. Um, Because they breed so easily, it's really easy to, you know, get lots and lots of them, which is very cool. So this new species is... uh, from the Tsingi de Bemaraha, which is a karst, a limestone karst formation in the west of Madagascar. And it's, I mean, so essentially Paradura are the Madagascan version of Cercidactylus. So you have lots and lots of new species that are being described. I think the species number has roughly doubled within the last 10 or 15 years. Mark, and, uh, what, um, Mark what's a, what is a karst? A karst is like an outcropping. Okay. Of so limestone in particular forms forms karstic formations, which are um, so the sea is famous for being. It's like these jagged limestone rocks, and you flick them, and they go zing, <laughs> and that's part of the reason they're called zingy. And um, <laughs> yeah, so these these karstic formations are famous because they sort of isolate species within them, and they they create these. Um, these conditions that are really great for diverging from other uh, species that are more widespread. So if you get to a karst, you go into the karst, and suddenly you're sort of cut off from the outside because you go through these canyons. And that happens again and again. We're actually describing another species of gecko uh, from a different limestone karst in Madagascar right now. So that one, that paper is uh, in revision. We've just gotten it back. It's going back to Zootaxa soon. Um, yeah, and um, people may be familiar with Geckolepis megalepis, this uh, large-scaled fish-scale fish gecko that I described in 2017, which was also a karst endemic. Um, yeah, so karst endemics are really cool, and Cercidactylus produce a lot of karst endemics because they are good at speciating in the first place, and then they go to a karst and they're like, ooh, let's go, and then they go in and whee! Lots and lots of new species. So, uh, yeah, that's the that's the two papers that were published. I, did I mention that they were published on the same day because they're in the same issue of Salamandra? That's the second time that's actually happened to me um, in the same journal because we publish a lot of our stuff in Salamandra because it's um, for people who are members of the German Society for Herpetology and Herpetoculture, it is free to publish and it's open access. So it's a great, and and it has the highest impact factor of all uh, herpetological journals or almost all herpetological journals. So it's a really great journal to publish uh, species descriptions in and other small works um, that are not so large in their systematic uh, or evolutionary scope. 
So uh, other things that I have going on, I have another paper that should be coming out any day now in the journal Evolutionary Systematics, which is another tiny systematic taxonomic journal um, where we are publishing a new species of frog also from northeastern Madagascar. And we are waiting on proofs from two more papers, one to be published in Salamandra and one in Zootaxa. And... Um, uh, what else is going on? I resubmitted my plus one paper, my second plus one paper, which is about uh, frog uh, conservation assessment stuff and basically rattles on against the IUCN's current practice of how to deal with species complexes, which is something that we will deal with when that paper comes out because it's going to be um, it, it has a lot of strong opinions in it as you may not be so surprised to learn. Oh. <laughs> and, um, and finally, I am, of course, most importantly, searching with some fervor uh, for a date to schedule my defense, my thesis defense, because uh, through a series of unfortunate events, um, my thesis was sort of got stuck because two different people who were supposed to be writing uh, reviews of the thesis were waiting on each other and didn't communicate with one another and therefore they didn't do the thing until I chased up the emails and finally realized and figured out that something was wrong. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to schedule the thesis defense date. It might be in... It, I, I was hoping that it would be in June. Instead, it's probably going to be in August. Uh, if it's not in August, then it will be either in September or October. So it's getting... Uh, long of long in the tooth here, this whole thesis defense scheduling business. But anyway, I'm nearing the end, and I've been helping my good friend uh, David Prutze, who um, people might be aware of from his work on the Kalamanazutum species complex, these um, chameleons with flappy noses from Madagascar. Um, he is having his defense in two days on Tuesday, the 25th. And uh, yeah, so I've been helping him to sort of prepare for his defense, which has given me also a lot of thought for how I want to structure my defense. And um, yeah, no, it's been it's a really crazy busy time. I'm working on lots and lots of stuff that hasn't even been submitted yet. Uh, one of them is the big, big chameleon paper that I'm working on, uh, which I'm hoping to submit to PNAS ultimately. But anyway, so uh, there's just there's just so much going on. It's crazy. Summer is summer is bonkers. Um, yeah, Gabriel, how's it going for you? Well, I've also been working a lot, and I've been working on a lot of stuff that is still under embargo. So a lot of really cool stuff that you guys, some of it you guys are going to see pretty soon, and it's really really cool. But I cannot tell you anything about because it's still under embargo. However, I have been working on a few things that I could can, I can discuss now, which is I uh, was commissioned to reconstruct several species of marine rep, Mesozoic marine reptiles for the Australian Natural Maritime Museum in Sydney, Australia. And that includes reconstructing uh, uh, Mosasaur, which is Tylosaurus, uh, a pleosaur, a plesiosaur, several species of ichthyosaur, including the, the gigantic shonisaurus, the well-sized shonisaurus, and um, Archelon, the giant sea turtle. And Everybody's your, your favorite, favorite extinct turtle. Yes. No, I do like it. I do like it. I, I, I do like turtles. The, 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 the problem with me is that I, I, I did a, a poster a long time ago about the Neograra formation, 
from the late Cretaceous of North America, and it had so many species of sea turtles that I was like burned with reconstructed sea turtles. But <laughs> I've recovered since then, and it was a lot of fun to reconstruct this archelon for the Australian Na Maritime National Maritime Museum. Um, I also recently uh, did several illustrations for the latest issue of the BBC Science Focus magazine, which came out uh, on sale last week. And so if you live in the UK, you can find it there, or you can, I think you can actually order it online if you're outside the UK. And it was really fun because it's a, uh, it was an article uh, uh, about the coloration in dinosaurs. The dinosaurs that we know, or we have a better idea what color they would have had due to the uh, fossilized melanosomes. And so there are seven species, the seven species that we know uh, so far. And, and the cool thing is that I got commissioned in, for that to reconstruct uh, Borealopelta, which is this nodosaur. A nodosaur is a type of ankylosaur um, that you know everybody knows about because the fossil is so beautifully preserved mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah and, and um because I, of those bo those bony plates right it's it's like it's like looking at the actual animal it's yes it's, it's crazy it, it preserves yeah, it's, it's incredible beautifully preserved so based on that it preserves a lot of melanosomes and, and with that they found out that it was counter shaded and that it was probably brown or reddish brown color so mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun to reconstruct, even though reconstructed ankylosaurs is quite challenging because they have all those uh, osteoderms and spines and stuff in very precise uh, patterns. Yeah. So, but that was yeah. a lot of fun. I also got to reconstruct a, a, a lot of um, uh, draw uh, uh, Paravian dinosaurs like Ankyornis and Kaihong. and which are like uh, iridescent. They had a uh, Microraptor also, which had like iridescent plumage so that like was a, a lot like of fun. a like a starling almost or like uh yeah or or like uh yeah like uh like a uh, grackle or yeah or even even in, in the kehong um uh, case it might have even been almost as much as hummingbirds because they they preserve a special Whoa. yeah so they were quite iridescent um hmm. uh so yeah that was a lot of fun those are the ones that I can talk about. I also recently got uh, invited to uh, talk about paleo art in uh, the uh, with the guys of the Common Descent podcast. Our fellow friends, uh, the Common Descent podcast, Will and David, they invited me to uh, because they had an episode about paleo art, and I was the invited guest. I had a lot of fun talking to them, and that should be coming out next week i think or in a couple of weeks cool. so it's coming out soon so yeah mm -hmm. a, a part of that i've been working on my book um which is a lot of work as you guys know but i'm getting closer each day more and more to finishing it and i hope to yeah. have it ready soon that's all from my side what about you ethan uh so i finally have finished and handed in all the illustrations for the uh the third in the Does It Fart uh, trilogy, <laughs> uh, which is going to be called Believe It or Snot. So it was a lot of uh, 
Hag- my favorite title of the three. <laughs> Hagfish, and you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to draw. So there are some goodies coming. Yes. Yeah, I've gotten to see the sneak peeks, and they're great. Thank you. They're so good. So yeah, yeah so that was taking up a lot of my time. I've been doing a lot of commissions, and like we were kind of mentioning before, this is the time of year where it's. I start to slow down and feel like I need a break, but uh, this yeah. is, you know, yeah, this was a perfect time it's to pretty, start a, start a podcast pretty. last year. It was <laughs> a perfect time to start a podcast. I think we uh, we all agreed last year that uh, our stress loads were sufficiently high that we would be able to take on another project yes. and uh, <laughs> and here we and are make that make things much I, worse. You know, so. <laughs> I, I will say in in relation to that, I, I'm actually kind of shocked that we've made it this far it's 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 a great thing <laughs> and theoretically this should be i guess this should be our 13th episode if we had done the perfect 12 yeah um so we've only missed two and that was just because of the scheduling uh hiccups and well and just difficulties working with uh, time zones and yeah. weekends and yeah. everything it's just been a nightmare but we have worked out a schedule already so we will definitely have episodes until uh, well for the foreseeable future, don't, maybe say, not don't as say that. Precisely. Don't say we'll definitely have episodes. Like, that's like naming your your file, you know, something final. Yes, don't final, jinx it. final, final version final, two. Final, final, final <laughs> underscore three. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I guess that's true. But we're we're doing our best, and um, yeah, as as we mentioned, we're also. Uh, hoping to branch out, well, not branch out, but uh, do some cool new things that people can then, um, that that will make things a little bit more rewarding also for the listeners, we hope. So, um, yeah. Great. Let's move on to everybody's favorite section. (laughs) Breaking news! Oh, I knew it. I knew it was coming, and I was. I missed it. That was a that was a particularly screechy one, but here we are. All right. It's obviously it's been quite a while since our last episode, which was recorded. It was recorded before I left for Madagascar, right? And then it was released the, after I returned. The day before um, you, you left, we recorded it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was so ill and <laughs> everything. Like, I sounded miserable. <laughs> I was listening to it again yesterday and I was like, oh God, everything, like, everything is fine except that I, I just sound like I'm dying <laughs> all the way through. So. It was, and then you had to email me stuff while you were in Madagascar and it was, yeah. Yeah, to try and get the like I, I I sent Ethan this audio file like trying to work walk him through from memory how to upload an episode to this to the website. It was partially wrong as well, so that, that's, that's part of the reason we, it got then delayed. We and, sorted it out. It was all right. Was we did. Yeah, it was all fine in the end. But you know, here we are, and now we're ready to embark upon the breaking news, the news, the new papers that have been published. Since, um, well, since probably March, April, April. Yeah. And to be honest, it was a challenge because first of all, Google will only show you a hundred pages of results. And there have been more than a hundred papers that are relevant to our search terms published since, you know, our last episode. So 
uh, sorting through all of those and trying to find the right ones to then, uh, you know, to you know, the good ones, the cool ones uh, to bring into this episode was a challenge. So undoubtedly, there will be some cool ones that we're going to miss. Uh, but we wanted to focus on a few that caught our attention and are super awesome. So without further ado, our first paper is by Erica K. Bacon, mm, except Bacon. Bacon. B-A-K-E-N, and Dean C. Adams, published in Ecology and Evolution, entitled Macroevolution of Arboreality in Salamanders. And I saw this paper on the day that it came out, and I got very excited about it, Um, partially because I love Bolitoglossa, love me some Bolitoglossa, and also a big fan of Thorius. How How about Anides? Eh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, only insofar as Anides is a very useful name for puns, you know. Uh, whenever you go shopping and you see some shoes, you're like, Anides! Um, anyway. Um, oh, God. I didn't miss that. Yeah. <laughs> they do, uh, have, they anyway. do have very cool feet. Uh, all, all of them have... I mean, bolitic loss yeah, definitely has so, cool feet. Yes, exactly. And what's amazing or what's very cool about this paper. So they take a phylogeny of the salamanders, which they made new, which is fine, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and they took geometric morphometrics on the hands using semi-landmarks. So some semi-landmarks are these like somewhere between like... They're not as robust as the normal landmarks are. Okay? And what they did is they placed a point at the base on either side of every finger and at the tip of that finger. And then they placed semi-landmarks to the sides of to the width of the toe pad. And if you know about salamanders, you know then that the shape of hands varies from very human hand-like in terms of digit separation to essentially mittens. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot and, of those arboreal salamanders have these weird, like, catcher mitt type hands. Well, exactly. Bolitoglossa yeah. is this one of the most, one of the key diagnostic features to identify species is the shape of the hand. Yeah, and the right. And, the, and the number of toes that are completely reduced or partially reduced. And so the, the, the idea of this study was great. And the simplicity of it was also wonderful. So they did ancestral state reconstructions to find out how many transitions there were in each direction between the different um, ecological characters. Like we talked about in the second to last episode, I think, where we talked about Eleutherodactylus and those different um, clay, like the different ecomorphs that they were jumping in between. Here they had six different forms, fossorial cave Saxicolus, a rock dwelling, arboreal, aquatic, and terrestrial. And uh, they show, you know, how many different transitions there were between the different um, types of um, ecology, which is very cool. And then they did regressions to find out essentially, or I think they might have done ANOVA, but essentially they were trying to find out, um, are these mitten-like hands actually related to arboreality? Is there something about arboreality that has a speci- like a specific hand shape associated with being an arboreal salamander? Yeah. And the answer, to my utter surprise, is no. So yeah, what it well, turns out is... I mean, I'm interested because 
not not to cut you off there, but like, you know, Politiglossa has the the mittens, and I don't think Anides does. I think Anides has full fledged fingers. Yeah, there are. Yeah, so there are some other. So there are arboreal salamanders that have fingers. There are. But there are also fossorial salamanders, or, you know, like, essentially fossorial salamanders. I don't know where Thorius actually falls, if they count as terrestrial or fossorial, um, yeah. or arboreal. Or thor- where? I don't even know where they are. But Thorius are the world's smallest salamanders, so um, they're not mentioned by name in the thing, otherwise I'd be able to find out. Um, but... Yeah, to my to my utter surprise, there is apparently no true arboreal foot phenotype, um, mm. and I also would have thought that these mitten hands or whatever would be diagnostic for um, for being an arboreal salamander or at least being derived from an arboreal lineage. How robust um, are these results? They, I mean, poor, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they look relatively robust. That seems uh, the odd conclusions they draw are, see, are are certainly quite strong. Um, but what they do show there might be others. Is that the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. What, what what they do show is that the arboreal lineages have um, they basically slow down the shifts in morphological evolution within the hand morphology and also I think in body size. Um, so once you get into that arboreal niche with whatever thing you've got, you tend to not become so variable on what your scheme is. I, I have There's, a question. Are, are these salamanders doing arboreality in the same way? Meaning, are they... Ah, are, yeah. So that's because what I that's thought, a, too. Yeah, that's a big difference of how they and are remember, being arboreal. remember, uh, Bolitoglossa is one of the few tropical salamanders is, is the only tro- the only south american the only one. really trout yeah right so there could be it's not it's a it's a weird case is, there's a, there's the, more in in, in yeah. central america but south america is the only genus is going to close and and they do they are boreal but they they it's not like uh, like i don't know what other arboreal salamanders are doing but politoglossa is basically Perching on leaves and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not. Uh, it's not grabbing yeah, twigs so or branches. I, th- yeah. I think the gist is that the Bolitoglossini um, essentially have a common ancestor who became arboreal, but then have undergone uh, what looks like maybe fifty. Well, probably fewer than fifty, but let's say maybe fifteen or so reversals to terrestriality um, throughout the tree. So they've got lots and lots of arboreal lineages that are sister to terrestrial lineages. And well, yeah, because those terrestrial lineages are probably usually are like upper paramo species that where there are no trees. So they have to live like they live in yeah, very high areas. For example. Where, yeah. But there, I mean, there are way more more tips than can be explained simply by uh, by So they elevational were, they were ancestrally arboreal. And several, and they yes. lost Arborelli several times. Exactly, and I think then the reason that we don't have the the phenotype, the hand shape, maybe associated with arboreality, is that all of these things ancestrally have that arboreal uh, that that ancestral mitten, and then you have a mixture of signals exactly. between the convergently terrestrial things. So it doesn't but that mean still means exactly. that the transition to terrestriality did not was not accompanied by the reemergence of fingers yeah, or whatever, you know, um, it's not conditioned upon the other thing. Um, 
which to me, I mean, this is a really fascinating study. It's worthy of looking into in more depth. I have not personally had a chance to read it in uh, super depth, but it's very cool, the the results that they're showing and the directions that it's pointing, because um, as you can tell from our conversation, we're all sort of surprised by the results. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, well, it's a really cool it's, approach. They're not a commonly studied uh, species right. either, or, you know, well, uh, area of. And they are all doing really bad with yeah. the with the putrefungus, <laughs> yeah. and the, most of the species are gone. Yeah, I mean that the the main thing that attracted me to the paper was as soon as I saw the generality of the title, you know, yeah. the title that says macroevolution of arboreality in salamanders. I don't remember when the last time was that I saw anything about macroevolution in salamanders. Period. So, um, really cool, really exciting also to see how nice the the phylogeny is so um but the phylogeny is apparently modified essentially from another one that was published in 2017 so anyway that is the first paper really cool we'll move on to the second paper just to mention very briefly uh in episode nine i think we mentioned a preprint by portic et al um in the bioarchive, I believe, that was talking about sexual dichromatism and hyperolid frogs. That paper has now been published in Systematic Biology with very beautiful figures. And um, yeah, essentially, again, just to recap what we said in the previous episode, sexual dichromatism appears to have evolved just once within the um, Afrobatrachid frogs and uh, was then lost repeatedly and surprisingly, the or I don't know how surprisingly, but the dichromatic lineages have twice the net rate of diversification of monochromatic lineages, which is uh, quite impressive. Maybe sexual selection is then stronger on those things, but we don't know how uh, the dichromatism works or what it's used for or anything, really. So, yeah. That that's just to tell you that to go read that paper now that it's been finally peer reviewed and published. Frogs be crazy. Frogs be crazy, and hyperolids in particular be extra crazy. Um, <laughs> the next paper, again published in Ecology and Evolution, this time by Alexander R. Crone et al., uh, entitled "Local Adaptation Does Not Lead to Genome-Wide Differentiation in Lava Flow Lizards." So this requires a little bit of explanation. Um, the paper, I believe, is open access, so you should be able to go and read it yourselves. It's nicely explained. But um, the gist is that there are well-known color forms uh, or color morphs that exist uh, within among lizards in desert habitats and also going on to lava flows. So in particular, in the Chihuahuan Desert, there are these very dark lava flows, and they are associated across basically all of the different lizards that occur there with um, melanistic coloration. So you can imagine very easily this idea that selection pressure of a light-colored lizard living on light-colored sand becomes very, very strong when that lizard goes over and stands on dark rock. Right? So there's a right. selection pressure for changing the color. Right. Um, and because of that, we expect, or, or when we see 
uh, on a lava flow that all the different lizards that are present, irrespective of how related they are, they essentially all have the same coloration that matches our expectation because we think that that selection pressure is really, really strong. But the question now is, is this a form of ecological speciation? Is that selection pressure stopping the rest of gene flow between the light and dark populations? Do you have then two different selective optima that are then linked maybe to other genes within the genome that could eventually drive an ecological speciation? Um, and that is an open question that has been sitting on the table for quite a while. Uh, there's a uh, notable paper published back in 2011 about uh, white sands lizards um, that are also, you know, white and um, can I mention that repeatedly uh, evolved that whiteness uh, collared lizards? There, you've got collared lizards as one of the species we're talking about. Yes, they're a great example of of sexual display color. The yeah. males are extremely, I don't, you know, if you're not familiar with collar lizards, the males are extremely brightly, sometimes blue or blue green. Yeah. Um, and they have these like brilliant colors. So it's interesting that, that, you know, there's a sexual selection angle with them too. Exactly. And I think that this is uh, really important when we're talking about these different color forms. I don't know what those, what the dark form of the, um, collared lizards, the Crotophytus collaris lizards, looks like because it must be somehow darker. But I can't imagine that they're getting rid of the blue and the orange and all that stuff that's going on in their throat. So anyway, I haven't looked at that. Yeah. But uh, the point is, there is this important question within speciation and evolution research um, whether this kind of selection pressure also drives uh, speciation. And the answer of this, so this paper set out to answer that question, and basically to, to give it away, the answer that they found is no. So although the colorations diverge and become relatively stable across the two different microhabitats, let's say, within the overall Chihuahuan Desert, um, the... The and those those loci presumably are then under the the coloration loci are then under very strong selection. Gene flow is still continuing to a very significant extent within those species. That's the that's the major outcome here. And also apparently uh, migration rates are still quite high. So in this particular case, this is nice evidence that um, this kind of selective barrier can be selecting on a certain part of the genome without driving necessarily an ecological speciation event, which is very cool. That's um, not so easy to demonstrate, and it's been done quite nicely here. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. The lizards are still finding each other sexy, even though yeah. they're not the same color. Exactly, and you know they're, they're still recognizing. I think that's really cool as well. That means that they're not necessarily using... Um, you know, the alpha coloration difference, the, the, the brightness differences something else, among yeah. each other yeah. to assess their mates, but they're using something else to assess the mates. So the, the thing that's under selection yeah. for e ecologically is not related I, to the sexual I, selection, apparently. And I'm and wondering, not I, causing yeah, any and kind I wonder of if it, like, if it works in one direction or another, like if it's, if it's a male who's the morph or the female, because collared lizards are dimorphic, you know, right. you know. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know if they mentioned that in the paper, but that's a that's an interesting question. So uh, to mention the other lizards that they used, 
Um, so we already said Crotophytus colaris, but they also use uh, Scaloporus colazi, colzi, colzi, the fence lizard, one of the, a, a fence one lizard, of the fence lizards, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and a Eurosaurus ornatus, which is an ornate tree lizard, um, yeah, and all three of those, as I've already said, are essentially dark where the lava flow is dark and light where the um, substrate is. Scaloporus tend to be fairly dark anyway, too. I think so. Oh, some of them, but some of them can be really bright, um, yeah. like like brown or, or yeah, pale. Yeah, yeah almost like bronze yeah. looking, yeah. yeah. But there are Scaloporus that are also black. Yeah, right. Totally and black. And blue and green. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> true. Green, yeah, emerald swifts, right? Extremely varied. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on again. This time... Richard Shine at oh we remember Richard Shine from previous episodes where we've talked about sea snakes and this is of course no exception. Uh, this paper was published in Coral Reefs entitled Morphology, Reproduction, and Diet of the Greater Sea Snake Hydrophis Major, Elapidae Hydrophi- uh, Hydrophinae. Um, so this paper I thought was um, obviously it's not like huge news it's. You know, it's not going to shake any fields, but it's really nice demonstration of the utility of museum specimens and the amount of ecological data we can get without necessary, necessarily having to go into the field and collect additional specimens or uh, without having to do behavioral studies. Actually, this study did include um, field studies as well to sort of verify or, or supplement the results. Um, but the gist is... Uh, that they d- dissected 119 specimens of Hydrophis major, one of the sea snakes, and they found, um, generally speaking, that, so first of all, most specimens in museums are females. They found, I think, 60, they had 64 females and 30-something males, and I guess the rest were, were juveniles. Um in general, females have shorter tails and wider bodies, especially at the same standardized by length. And what's really cool is that in the stomach, I think of all of them, were only the marine catfish, Plotosis lineatus. A.K.A. the coral catfish, which I have some experience with because they're very common in the aquarium trade. And uh, when I was caring for them, I did not know this, but later found out that they are, like, the most venomous catfish. Uh, like, the venom is supposed to be excruciating, and it's delivered through dorsal fin spines. So that immediately piqued my interest, because are they eating them? Uh, are they immune to the venom? Are they, you know... <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great question. And they, they he said, or they say in the paper also, that uh, even the live snakes that they caught in the field also only had platosis lineatus in their stomach. It makes me wonder if this is a both venomous and poisonous uh, snake. <laughs> you know, that they're maybe sequestering... Oh, good question. Sequestering those, just like, uh, you know, garter snakes with newts and stuff. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible to sequester that kind of venom. I suppose it must be. It's a protein. It's available somehow in the in the food that's It just being makes me ingested. think when, it, when a snake exclusively eats another venomous, you know, animal, it makes me wonder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rhabdophis is the best example, of course, of our, um, the lovely keelbags. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that, I mean, it's a it's, it's just a, a little study, but it's really cool to see that kind of insight into animals that we really don't understand. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay, next paper, uh, Karola A.M. Jovanovich et al., published in Frontiers in Zoology, entitled A Dune with a View, <laughs> The Eyes of a Neotropical Fossorial Lizard. Now... Gabriel will be very excited about this paper. I, 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 I am. He's talking about two. He's talking about two families of lizards are very near and dear to. These are a few yeah. of your favorite things. <laughs> and I work with them. So. Yeah. So this paper is essentially going in to look at the eye cell, like the the you know the the morphology of the eyes of two different lizards. Uh, on the one hand. The Taid, Amivula ocellifera. Amivula ocellifera. Amivula, sure. I named that genus, so I should know. Amivula ocellifera. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, gymna, a gymnothalmid. No, that's a tear. Uh, which is. Amivula ocellifera is a tear. And the gymnothalmid yes, that they're that's dealing with. Yeah, and the yeah. that they're dealing with is Calyptomatus nicturus. I was getting there. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, and they looked at the eyes of these of these lizards, and um, important to know that the uh, gymnothalmid, the Calyptomatus nicturus, is a fossorial species, and so they looked into the eyes to see, okay, does this fossorial species? It's also nocturnal. Um, is this fossorial and nocturnal lizard able to see? And what are its, you know, what are its abil abilities in terms of vision? Um, and the results are quite remarkable. So if you, uh, if you do happen to get access to the paper, there will be a link, obviously, in the show notes on squamatespod.com. Um, but I don't know if it's open access no, it's not. or not. It's not, it's not. I, I think it is, actually. Is it? Um, it is. I mean, it says open access at the top of the page, so I presume it is. <laughs> um, in figure three of the paper, you can see a really nice picture of the, um, of the lizard essentially in life in 3a and what i find remarkable is that this is a species of fossorial lizard that has managed to somehow retain a um an isolated eye region so that the eye is not like in many other fossorial lizards or especially in the fossorial um, blind snakes like typhlopidae is not covered with a scale per se um, but seems to have like a, a you know, a, ni a nick out of the scales that are around it that give it a, a very unusual does this, uh, look. Is this an animal that still, does it still have a functioning eyelid? It does not have a functioning eyelid, um, but it does for some I mean, it seems to have essentially evolved a um, the equivalent of the snake. Brille, you know, yeah, the, 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 brille, the yeah. snake. Um, that happened several times um, among gymnothalids. Uh, the, yeah. the genus of that gave the name to the family, gymnothalids, has a complete snake-like... Uh, it has no movable eyelids and it has a complete snake-like brille on top of the eye. 
Fascinating. What I want to yeah, say is that so, it's interesting because Game Nostalgics, there's a whole uh, there's a whole group, a lot of Game Nostalgics are fossorial, and among those, several of them have used these dunes habitats in different parts of South America, where, where there are dunes habitats where they have become fossorial, similar to what happens here in the United States with the sand skink, yeah. that in here in Florida lives underground, and it's the same thing, very reduced or lost limbs, and eyes very small and obvious fossorial capacity in the in the head, so it's almost like shovel like. That happens many many times. I'm going to tell this in different groups separately, in different radiations. So it has occurred several several times in the family. Mm. This and it's, it's it's a really interesting paper. Yeah. Um, so what they have essentially showed is that these um, gymnothalmids can see. Probably, or at least this species can see relatively well under strong light um, and does have improved sensitivity within in, in dim light. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that a, a, a crepuscular or nocturnal uh, skink-like lizard that's living within the sand is going to have that kind of function. And they infer, therefore, or they suggest that uh, these things may be coming up onto uh, the surface to hunt, um, you know, in the twilight hours and maybe even uh, towards dawn. Um, Interesting. And therefore using their eyes in... Interesting to think know. about that in the light of, you know, what we've talked about in the past about snake evolution origins and, uh, you know, and, and, and how we, remember how we talked about how, with Helen about how snakes don't have that bad a vision despite you know popular knowledge being that they do a lot of snakes can yeah. see quite well so they have excellent some of them have excellent vision yeah so it's it puts me in mind of that it makes me think about about uh you know so what they're saying is that this animal this calyptomantis can be probably vespertine or crepuscular right and uh it probably i find this amazing because i think that we know very little, and it's so difficult to observe these animals. These are tiny lizards in the field. I, I, I know from, from observing uh, uh, gymnostalmas in the field, they are semi-fossorial. They, they, they have very, they also go, but they, they do this thing where they go down under the leaf litter. They come up for a minute and they go down again under the leaf litter. Hmm. And, like breaching, and, like a little whale. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's like that's adorable. They, they forage a little bit and then they go yeah. down. So I, I'm finding uh, it's I I wonder if there's some of this going on also in in yeah. In this it, well, they're not. It's not a species. They're not a group that's commonly kept in captivity either. No, so nobody I knows. Apparently, think, this is why I keep telling you that yeah. we can we have to talk about gymnotomics. It's a huge family with a lot of different radiations. That apparently, if, if yeah. you don't work in the neotropics and you're not a herpetologist, you know nothing about. I mean, they do have an unfortunate name, which makes it difficult to communicate about them. <laughs> but you know, well, then we just gotta no, they're, we they're just gotta awesome come up with something better. You know, give call yeah. them, call them Jimmy's or something. Jim, Jim. Jimmy's is a great name. We're going to call them Jimmy's from now on. Oh, Excellent. We, oh, no. Decided. Oh, no, no. We're going to talk a little bit further ahead in the breaking news about a paper that wants to give a name to them and that is not, I refuse to use. Yeah. So, no, it's no. obviously not going to be as good as Jimmy's. I mean, no chance. No, they want to call them Tegulets, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. No, no. We'll, no, get, no. we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second. All right. 
Our next paper is by Yuxiang Liu et al., yeah. published in the Journal of Experimental Biology, and it's entitled A Cognitive Map in a Poison Frog. This is bananas. This is bananas. This is bananas. All right. Yeah. So For many reasons. A cognitive map. For, for, for the simplicity of it, a cognitive map is essentially uh, a, a, a inside your mind's eye a, an ability to picture the layout of a space. So you know where you are relative to other um, features, right. and you can therefore calculate roughly where you stand. And the prediction is that a species that has one of these cognitive maps will be able, for example, if you let it memorize a maze... It'll be able to figure out where it is in the maze and therefore complete it faster. Interesting that we we have I've I've read stuff about how a lot of arboreal squirrels, for example, are very good at building cognitive maps because if you're an arboreal animal, I think you have to know. Plus, with them, I think it's also the the matter of hiding where you put your nuts, where you you kept the nuts. They have to remember exactly where they hide the nuts and stuff. Yeah, and they forget most of them. Right, uh, which is why we have trees. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> but to, so, but in a frog, to to have a a mat, you know, a cognitive mat. I mean, they're not even a particularly arboreal frog. Either. No, exactly. So that's important to mention. This is a study that was done on Dendrobates aratus, the um, uh, what are they called? Uh, the, the green arrow frog, green, arrow green frog. poison arrow green frog. Green arrow frog, yeah, yeah. Even though auratus means gold, uh, there's right? you know why that happened. There is a gold color morph, no, no. but also no, in the reserve they, they turn no, yellow. It's because they were described from yeah. from preserved uh, from specimens yeah. preserved, that. Yeah. 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 Same thing with Leucomelus. Be- uh, exactly. Yeah. 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 But basically, everything that has an auratus in maybe its name two. is because of that. The way it's it's been it's been described from preserved specimens. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. they're uh, green or blue or bronze colored in. Yeah, in, well, primarily green, actually, right? They have that. I'm actually short, sitting next to about four, four of them, about a foot away from me right now. But. Yeah, <laughs> they're one of the most common dart frogs in the pet trade. Yeah, um, super and, easy, super uh, super cool frogs. And apparently, they are also a really great uh, study system. So, what blew my mind about this paper, and the reason that I want to talk about it is that they trained the frogs to navigate a maze, and then they navigated the maze, <laughs> which is, oh yeah, if you'll pardon the pun, amazing. <laughs> oh, mine, mine, now, mine do my taxes for me. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you can train a frog, like, I can't even train my snakes. <laughs> they're, you know, they're difficult animals. But that you can train a dart frog is not a thing that would ever have occurred to me. So I, I will say this, and we and we have talked, you know, off air about animal cognition and reptile and amphibian cognition and and I think we'd love to do a, an actual episode on that at some point. And I think we're gonna address mm. that again with a question. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I think that a lot of times we are uh, human beings are really bad at gauging the intelligence of things that are not humans. Yep. And, oh, that's true. And I think that that's kind of where this falls for me is sort of. Yeah. I'm not claiming that they're you know going to write concertos or anything like that, but I, I, I'm saying that we, we don't really understand non-human intelligences well, really except, at all at all. 
Exactly, especially because we're measuring it wrong. We start measuring it yeah. from a from a human intelligence perspective, and we're missing a right. lot. I was actually watching a documentary about that. Is this I forgot the name of the of the of the um, scientist that is doing research, but he just basically got a grant now to study human, animal intelligence in all types of different animals, not the regular mammals and birds, because it's right. a lot more that we need to know, and there's a lot that. There, there's a lot that we're missing that we didn't see before. Mm -hmm. They're Correct. actually a lot smarter because because than they're thought. not intelligent, right? And they're not intelligent in the way that human beings think of intelligence. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're not intelligent, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I think this is one of those things where we don't really understand a lot of it. And yes. Yeah, I think this is our attempt to puzzle together the, the components of intelligence. So yes. realizing that these animals are able to memorize the locations of different landmarks and use those landmarks to navigate. I mean, if you think about how, how dart frogs, especially dart frogs that uh, exhibit parental care where they carry their tadpoles on their backs. Yep. Um, it's so important that they know exactly where everything is. Well, they, and uh, Alaris is also yeah. territorial, right? Yeah, they are. And so, I would say they also they live in a three-dimensional sort of yeah. mapped out world. So it wouldn't surprise me that they would have some kind of skills for for mapping, you know, whose territory is where in this jungle exactly. environment. Yeah. yeah. It's a complex environment and they need to be able to have that skill in order to understand it. But yeah, for me, what stood out is the fact that you can train a poison dart frog, <laughs> <laughs> which is great news. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I look forward to other things that can be done with poison dart frogs. But <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, that, yeah, that's, that's it. We'll move on to Jun Tao Hu et al., Published in Molecular Biology and Evolution, the paper is entitled The Epigenetic Signature of Colonizing New Environments in Anolis Lizards. Anolis. Now you thought we were going to go an entire episode what, without mentioning anoles. What kind of one-year spectacular would it be if we didn't? Exactly. Uh, we have to stay on brand. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to talk about some really complex methods about anoles. That's as on brand as it gets for this show, right? Anoles. I, so, I just love that your note here, your bullet point, can I just say, it says epigenetics is so hot right now. Like <laughs> It's hot right now. It is a hot topic. It is. Epigenetics is where it is at <laughs> if you want to be doing some really complicated, crazy science that nobody can understand. And I think that is going to be the gist of this study is that nobody is going to be able to understand what we're talking about, uh, uh, which makes it really easy because no one will be able to tell where I'm making mistakes. <laughs> so... Um, Okay, first so, first question, what is methylation? Right. First question is what is epigenetics? Epigenetics <laughs> is epigenetics is essentially uh, different ways that the three-dimensional ultrastructure of DNA can be modified to change the way that it works. Okay. You can, for example, have it bound in such a way that your uh, your little activators that are floating around in the cells that would turn on a gene they can't turn on the gene because they can't bind to it because there's something in the way and this is tied and with development correct it's no this is tied with uh, this can also happen within the lifespan of a single cell okay okay 
but it can also be related to um, various different uh, developmental effects. There's we now know that epigenetic things can also be passed on. So um, you can have. Uh, I mean, it's almost Lamarckian in the way that it I was going to say. That sounds like uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Lamarck, uh, for, for those who are not aware, was uh, a, a scientist very, very early on. Who, Pre, Pre-Darwinian or, scientist. Who, Pre-Darwinian yeah. scientist, yes, who proposed that essentially animals change by o- over the lifetime of the parent. They essentially uh, try to achieve a new thing, and that new thing is passed on, and so you get this rapid accumulation of uh, that thing it, it, becoming more and more exaggerated. Yeah, Lamarck, the classic yeah, example right. being the length of a, a giraffe's neck. Yeah. Or if you're a bodybuilder, all your children are, are <laughs> exactly. super muscular your, your children. Your babies come out ripped, <laughs> and, uh, and that's, essentially, yeah. that's essentially the idea of, of, of uh, Lamarck. And as it turns out, epigenetics, not so crazy different from Lamarck. And as my colleagues sometimes remind me, um, you know, had we been talking about epigenetics as we talk about it today some 50 years ago you would have been crucified yeah uh, because you, you know well, it sort of goes I, against I everything we know about mendelian if i knew anything about that and... when i was in you know in high school i would have been a huge pain in the ass in my you know biology class <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean it's also the thing it, it didn't really become mainstream and 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 known about to such a great extent well, until relatively recently because yeah. it doesn't work exactly like Lamarck said it's not exactly the same. no no it doesn't I mean it, it basically says yeah. that for example that the famous thing that they did where the, 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 the this group of rabbits uh, if they got like a major predatory event for a lot of years the stress that that produced in the, mother, in the mothers changed their DNA structure and that is passed that way it's not like uh, like the famous thing where you cut the tail of the rat and eventually the rat is going to come out with a the next generation of rat is going to come out with a short tail that's right. not how it works yeah, yeah. no that's it, it's true <laughs> it it's it resembles lamarckian theory it isn't it is lamarckian Lamarck. but it, yeah. it, it, it has Lamarck is was was wrong and remains <laughs> yes. wrong yes. please <laughs> we have to make sure that we thing. say that because you know how <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, you're you're completely right <laughs> i want to be clear lamarck was wrong yes. darwin for the win yes okay um, so, what is methylation? Methylation is, uh, well, to, to make it very simple, is just a way to turn off certain genes. Okay. That's, right. that's what you need to know. It, it basically is, is bundling the DNA such that it cannot then be, um, be activated and transcribed from. So, what is, that, what is the relevance here? Well, essentially, what these guys did... Um, was they took some anoles and they colonized little islands with them as we... (laughs) No, not anoles. Yes. Um, (laughs) They they colonized islands with them. This is one of the great things that you can do with anoles and especially in the Caribbean because there are all these micro islands. You can take them, you can throw them on an island and you can see what happens. At this point, all this... Tiny island had to have anolis because they have they have colonized so many of these islands. I think you I think you underestimate how many of these studies are all taking place in parallel on the same island, and they're just measuring different things. 
I really think that a lot of these studies is going to be like the same lizard being sampled for three no, different no, purposes. Is, it wasn't with the gnolls, but there is a there is a, there was one that was done where they what was the uh, I forgot what species it was, but they put them on an island and they all developed gut bacteria and switched to herbivory. Uh, oh yeah, that's all asserted. Yeah, that, yeah. that was in oh. Europe. Yeah, yeah so there's a Mediterranean. Yeah. Well, Darcy's yeah. Um, it's and like, that was, it was like a wall as far as I'm aware, it was yeah. not an in, it, not a fully intentional experiment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it only took so, him like 50 anyway. years or something, right? Yeah. No, it was very very fast. But here we're talking about tiny islands, and they they colonized eight of these, varying in their habitat quality. And then they came back a few years later, and they checked the methylation patterns in the genomes. So what sort of being, what is being regulated by these epigenetic mechanisms. And what they found is that epigenetic variation was related to the sex of the lizards and also habitat quality, which means that the methylation was specifically related to genes relevant to habitat change, and thus the ability of the lizards to cope with changes in habitat and the way that they cope with those changes in habitat over a relatively short period of time, perhaps the initial stages of some kind of uh, evolutionary selective event, can happen through these epigenetic mechanisms. Which is very cool. I mean, I, I don't think anything similar to this has been done before. Um, and uh, I can't really say where this is going to go and you know what the sort of global impact of this is going to be. But it's really interesting to see this kind of study being done. I mean, anoles are perfect for this. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to see this kind of study being done in Squamates. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, it just puts them up there with you know really important study systems for understanding essential key evolutionary principles. And all these are a perfect uh, organism because they adapt super quickly. They they are resilient and their um, evolution they evolve so quickly. Um, they are famous because of that. Like, uh, one of the first studies that Watoni is one of these small islands was the one that found that after several few generations relatively, uh, and brown anolis that, are, that were releasing one of these islands that were less arboreal because they have less uh, tree covering had decreased their, the length of their legs in a few yeah. generations. So uh, yeah. that is unbelievable. Are they more, that, yeah. I, I would think they'd be more evolvable because they're, you know, they're-, they're Well, they're, they are super adaptable. Like well, I was going to say their generation uh, time is so is so quick too, and they are plastic. That they the lizard is yeah. plastic. They can move to different environments very quickly. I'm going to say a, a quick thing because I was actually thinking about that yesterday. This is going to be as fast as I'm going to be able to make it. Uh, <laughs> we have here in Miami, of course, a gigantic amount of brown animals everywhere, and they're literally everywhere. And every building you go, every tree has them, right? But where I live in North Miami. We didn't have curly tail lizards until mm, about seven years ago, where they suddenly expanded into this area. And curly tail lizards prey on brown anoles. So what usually happens is that uh, they 
the bramnolids have to go up on the trees uh, when the curtails show up. But we also have Puerto Rican crested anolis who live up in the tree, are larger than the brown anolis, and usually occupy the same middle levels of the tree because the green anolis are all the way in the top, in the canopy. So I noticed that I started seeing less and less and less brown anolis all over since the curly tails moved on and the places that have Puerto Rican crested anolis, you don't see that many uh, uh, crest, uh, brown anolis. And the other day I actually tweeted that I went to this park and I could only find four brown anolis in a place where you used to see hundreds and hundreds. What happened was that I walked the other day to the same park and it was cloudy where curly tails are not active. The Puerto Rican crested are nowhere to be seen. And then I saw a ton of brown anolis, all of a sudden active. Last night, I went to uh, my tar my local Target, where there used to be a lot of brown anolis, and since the curly tails got there, there was no brown anolis. It was late at night where the curly tails are not active, and all the brown anolis that I, you don't see now anymore during the day were active at mm. between eight o'clock and nine o'clock at night. So they are super adaptable, and they just, yeah. that's what they are so good at, yeah. at, at colonizing. Yeah, they, yeah. I think the, the important question is how how much of it is adaptable and how much of it is flexibility, because, you know, if it's within a generation, it can only really be flexibility. And even so, some of the you know phenotypic flexibility can also be, uh, you know, generational. You can suddenly change the conditions under which the animals are developing. And without having any kind of genetic changes, you can have remarkable changes in morphology. And that's something that is constantly having to be teased apart within the anoles because they are so flexible and so adaptable. Um, and obviously, it's a, a major problem for people working on them. Um, but it's also a source of interesting questions. You know, why? Why? You know, what's the difference between the two? And why is it that anoles are just so good at this? All right, we have. Two more papers that we just want to go through. One of them very, very quickly by Simon Beckins et al., published in uh, Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology. Lizard calls convey honest information on body size and bite performance, a role in predator deterrence? Question um, mark. Now, when I saw this, I was like, lizards? Geckos aren't really, I mean, geckos are lizards, but you don't really usually use the word lizard because gecko is sufficiently specific. So I was like, all right, well, this is just, you know, weird. But it turns out that they're talking about a lacerted lizard hmm. that vocalizes, which is, uh, if you'll remember our uh, general overview of the geckos, where we mentioned that they're basically the only lizards that vocalize actively. <laughs> uh, we were wrong. I had no idea that these lizards were able to do this. Well, thing. I mean, I've, I've heard of people, you know, saying that some lizards will do, uh, and snakes will do stridulation where they're rubbing right. scales against each other and stuff like that. But yeah, this is a but real this is decidedly not that. Yeah, exactly. This is a real vocalization. They even provide a beautiful, um, uh, sonogram within their, or, or, uh, spectrogram within their, um, their thing that shows beautiful harmonics. So it's not just like your typical, um, or, you know, I mean, we got, it's we, not a hiss. There's hissing, but it's right? A, yeah. A real, yeah. it's more like a, uh, squeak. a squeak. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Which is, I mean, the, the, it seems that the, 
dominant frequency is about 11 kilohertz, which is really high frequency. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, a screech. There's some there's some talk. I don't know if you can speak to this, and I know this is way off topic, and maybe this isn't this is for another time. But isn't there some discussion about um, infrasound use in chameleons? Oh, I have not heard of that. I've heard that. Really? I, I, I mean, they can presumably hear it. Yeah. But... Well, the the thought was that, and this might be a hobbyist thing. I don't know if it's. I don't know if there's any papers or anything, but there was talk that they were using. That the part of, part of the crest was was being used in infrasound communication. What? Huh. How? That I mean, that sounds like someone is uh, uh, smoking something, making shit up. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that, yeah. but I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> because very, very how do they? Be. Yeah, because how? How? How would that work? I mean, I'm trying to think. How would that? I don't know. In the same yeah. way that it works in whales, Gabriel. You have to think big picture here. Just. <laughs> Dude, what if they like? Exactly. What if it wobbles their masseter muscles, man? Uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. But you know, who knows? Who knows? As far as I know, we generally just assume that chameleons don't make any sounds because they don't have external ears, and they people just assume that they can't hear. They can hear for sure. Yeah. Um, right. What they can hear, not clear, but yeah. And yeah, finally, Gabriel has this paper for us. Yeah, so I want to complain about this paper. No, it's a, it's a cool paper for the most part. But but yeah. I but think it, we drink, right? We drink. Yeah. <laughs> but it but it has um so it's called Definition of the Caribbean Island Biogeographic Region with checklists and recommendations for standardized common names and of amphibians and reptiles. It's about hedges, of course, so everybody working in the Caribbean knows hedges at all, and that includes a lot of uh, famous people, which includes um, Hedges, Powell, Henderson, and others. <clears throat> and the paper is awesome. It's, a, it's like a, 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 a reclassification of what the Caribbean re bioregion should be, which I agree with. It's a, it's, a, it's a good reclassification of the biological definition of the biogeographic definition of the what is the Caribbean islands, which has to include the southern Caribbean islands like the northern uh, Venezuelan Antilles and the Dutch Antilles like Aruba, Curaçao, blah, blah. That part of the paper is all great. My problem with the paper was with the, <laughs> with the standardized common names list that they give of the Caribbean species because I yeah. believe that standardized names are very important. However... Yeah. For animals, they should also be sensible. Yes, and and, and for animals that already have well-known uh, common names that are you know right. seen field guides and uh, common scientific yeah. papers for a lot for decades and decades, it's pointless to change their name. A big example of that, talking about anolis, I'm going to give you in just one second is the um, the famous Cuban night anoli. Notice equestrians, which for some reason they decided that oh, the no. name was going to be wait a second till I find it uh, Cuban giant anoli. Why, if it's already known as Cuban night anoli for a long time, everybody yeah. knows it for the name, there is no reason to change it. Equestris yeah. means equestrian, which is a knight. So I don't understand what, why change the name. How that is not the worst. The worst is animals like Spherodactylus, the 
Tiny. Which are commonly called spheros. Or pygmy geckos. There are a lot of tiny yeah. names. Re- uh, have reef gecko. Uh, reef gecko. The reef gecko, which is this, the Florida species. So they decided to call these animals geckolets. <laughs> geckolets? Geckolets. Yeah, like <laughs> I understand. The... I mean, it's an adorable name, but it's real stupid. Well, yeah. Why? I mean, you can. There's no precedent. No, yeah. there's no, there's no real reason to do that. And then for gymnostalmids. Jimmy's. It's, which probably would have been better. Jimmy's is the correct answer. Probably would have been a, a better option. Um, they decided to call them tegulets. Tegulets? Tegulets. Because at some point they were called... Tegulets. Yeah, they were for like a small tegul. Which I understand because gymnotomists are the sister taxon to teets. Uh, and they were at some point included in as a subfamily of... The, I don't know why. Why is the yeah? But why would why go with that as the as the suffix meaning small? Like that's. I mean piglet. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, but like okay, but oftentimes you see uh, spherodactylids and others referred to as micro geckos, and yeah. that makes more sense than than throwing you know calling them geckolids. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I just it's not and. There are other things like already have proposed. So when we, when we, when uh, uh, Michael Harvey and I revised the family TED, when we were when we were giving our descriptions and our diagnosis for each genera that we named and their on their genera that were already named, we gave a proposed common name, and those were completely bypassed here. Because for example, Nemidophorus. Which we call spurred whiptails because they have spurs, like big anal spurs, and that's a diagnostic characters that other whiptails don't have. Um, they decided here to call South American whiptails, even when most, when a lot of species are not South American or Caribbean. So it's just, yeah. I have, if you're gonna do, I think, again, a list of common standard names is important. It should be done like it, it's done in ornithology. It should be. Right. It should I, be done I, I knew you were going to bring up the bird people because well, the they're people crazy about their common and, names, and they do it very well, and it serves a lot of purposes for conservation. Okay, it's yeah, very they do well, except for we don't need to alphabetize common, or we don't need to uh, to capitalize. Capitalize. I agree with capitalizing. Common I think nice. it looks. I think it looks good. Capitalize. <laughs> I, I I am a big capitalizer. I believe it that way. And here they did capitalize the common names. So I agree did with they? the way they did that. Yeah. yeah. But but I think it has to be something that is diagnostic, descriptive as much as you can, and also uh, if an, a species has a name, like for example, uh, let's think of a species that has a name, like. Uh, the South American Clelia Clelia, the Musurana, is known as the Musurana snake forever. Why would you change the name of the snake, for example? That makes no sense. Yeah. They're, 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 yeah. If you have a name that is descriptive enough, it's not confusing, and it's being used for a long yeah. time, like Cuban night anoli, why change it right. to... If it has a name already, I think you're right. I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, however, yeah. there are a lot of these guys that have no that, that only have scientific names... You know, like we were talking about the gymnothalmids, and I could see it there where you're coming up with 
a common name. Yeah, but I mean, you have to do your your, your research. If you're going to make a paper about it, you're going to publish a list. You have to go through and check if those names have if those species have a, a name right, in right. the literature. I had to review, or even if they have a name uh, they, manuscript. We, I mean, you're really good about about naming things and and checking with the you know the local names for things and stuff like that and. Oh, they don't have local names. That's the big advantage of Madagascar. It just well, most, doesn't most, exist. Most reptiles no in, the, in the tropics have no common names. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even in local languages, yeah. they just don't, like, they don't distinguish between them. Yeah. So, um, but I, I, I had to review uh, or, or I helped someone with their book one time, um, which I, I'm a little bit bitter about because I never got any benefit from actually putting lots of hours into. Um, but... The uh, they had made up common names for every species that they listed, and completely made up without consulting any of the other existing <laughs> databases or anything. Like the IUCN, the first thing it lists for you is the common name because the people at the IUCN are completely off their rockers and think <laughs> that that's like how you understand species, which is wrong. But uh, like all you have to do is go to the IUCN and for amphibians it's all from Frank and Ramis's proposed book of how to like the names for all the different groups of species which are partially stupid yeah um, I was gonna say that and, and for reptiles like there there are also books of eponyms the eponym dictionary of reptiles um, that explain also the like common names that but the problem is that we don't have we have to have something like ornithologists have which is a standardized version that everybody follows yes we do I, because otherwise we're having this problem with these crazy names everybody calls it something different and it's a mess and it serves okay, no purpose for a, isn't that the point of latin names is to write. okay but that, okay fine but that's for us who know about it but general public and this is particularly important for amphibians yeah. when we have species for conservation issue when you want to get a message out to the general public. If you talk about Atelopus espumarius, part of the people are going to be like, do now. <laughs> if you talk about the stop-footed toad or something on the, on the same vein, uh, I think that that carries the message a lot better. And it's important. It's very important to have a standardized... There have been several uh, attempts uh, to do this recently. And I, and I see the need for it. But it has to be done in a way that everybody agrees, everybody's going to respect it, and it's well-researched and approved by a committee of people who sit down and decide, let's agree with this. Well, you're, I mean, you're, you're right about the Cuban, the Cuban night, you know, changing up the name. I mean, that's, you know, like. Stupid. Yeah, that's stupid. That, that's, I'm right about that, everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, it must be so hard to be you. But seriously, I think I think I think it's uh, I I think it's uh, it's an important thing that they try to do. But if you're gonna do it, do it right. Yeah, and don't just restrict yourself to one bio region and consider only that region in terms of how you name your animals because that's ridiculous. Yeah, you, I mean, if if a species is found across most of the world and you're going to give it a regional common name, that's also stupid. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I don't know how many of the local language names they used, but that also should be considered. Yeah, very few. Um, they use, yeah. for what I see, very few. So, oh well. So that was a very pleasant and positive conversation. Let's <laughs> let's move on. Okay, uh, we're gonna talk now about a hashtag herper of history. Our herper this week. 
is Mary Cynthia Dickerson. She was born in 1866 in Hastings, Michigan. And uh, just for a little bit of temporary uh, temporal context, other important events of 1866 include Mendel publishing the very first uh, thing on the laws of inheritance. Uh, Ernst Haeckel being like, wait, protists are not animals, but they're also not plants. What the fuck? And <laughs> Alfred Nobel inventing dynamite. So, um, you know, many of the things that we take for granted today were just starting in 1866. Protists Among- and dynamite, yeah. <laughs> yeah, protists, dynamite, and genetics. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and uh, among the things, uh, exciting things that were happening in 1866 was the birth of uh, Mary Cynthia Dickerson. So she was uh, a a lady born in the mid-19th century, and yet she put herself, as Wikipedia puts it, she put herself through college. So she first went to the University of Michigan and then went on to the University of Chicago, uh, from which she graduated in 1897 with a bachelor's degree, which is uh, kind of unusual in the fact that she was uh, 31 years old when she got her bachelor's degree. Don't know why. Um But then the very first thing that she did after she got her bachelor's degree was to become head of the zoology and botany department at Rhode Island Normal School, which is a very normal place. Why would you call it a normal school? That immediately makes me suspect that something abnormal is going on. This is the most normal of all places. (laughs) (laughs) And it must have been a very normal place for them to be teaching zoology and botany. Um, And... So career-wise, she's famed for the publication of two books, um, which are first a book on moths and butterflies, which doesn't really interest us, and uh, the frog book, literally called The Frog Book, um, which was praised for depicting tadpoles and eggs associated to various uh-huh. different species within the United States, um, which in, in a way that had not been done until that point. Uh, it was criticized on various points of... Uh, being too much like a uh, personal narrative and not sufficiently scientific and not containing enough observations for the supposed 10-year period over which the observations were gathered. But nonetheless, it was an important book at the time, especially because it was the uh, essentially the first of its kind and became used as a textbook uh, for a very long time. Um, that contained it was essentially a, a field guide like thing for the for the amphibians of or the frogs of North America, um, uh, or at least of the United States. So uh, the position that she later held uh, from 1908 onward, she became a an employee of the American Museum of Natural History, which is of course in New York, and. She was there in 1909 when they founded the Department of Ichthyology and Herpetology, as was so often the case, you know, um, 
there are numerous different uh, journals, for example, still today that combine ichthyology and herpetology. The society. Copea being the most notable of that. And yes, obviously the society as well. Um, and at the time, she was the only herpetologist working in the museum. And then in 1911, she became a curator of the herpetology section, I suppose. And she was well known for her dioramas. And she considered exhibition work to be equally important to research, um, which I think is less frequently the case in um, museum curators today. Many uh, have to dance the fine line between too much diorama work and too much science without any outreach. Um, and she tried to balance them fully on her, uh, on her own. And uh, under her supervision, the collection, which must have been meager at the start of her, um, of her career, uh, grew to some 50,000 specimens, which is quite wow. impressive for that day and age and that location, which gives, just gives you an idea of how large the collection of the American Museum today must be, if already by 1920 they had some 50,000 specimens. Um, in 1920, they split the herpetology department from the ichthyology department. And when they did that, she was the first curator of the department. So um, the heritage of the American Museum's um, natural, uh, the American Museum's uh, herpetological department all uh, leads back to her. And um, actually from the beginning of her time or, or shortly after she joined the American Museum, she was the editor of uh, the American Museum Journal. Now, during all this time, Gilda also described uh, several species, 20 new species of reptile, some of which you may be familiar with, but I'm not going to list them off. And um, unfortunately, as always comes, you know, toward the end of our, our discussions of these people, um, the we, we do talk about how they um, declined and eventually died. And in her case, it's particularly tragic because from 1919 onwards, she started showing signs of psychological illness, um, some kind of hallucinations and um, erratic behavior. This was attributed to stress, um, <clears throat> which I'm sure none of us know what that's like. And um, eventually... It became so severe that she was committed to a psychiatric institution where she remained until she died at the age of just 57 years old in 1923, which is a... Uh, that's a loss. That's, that's a loss. Yeah, that, that's horrible. That's a, it's a loss, and um, it's also, you know, surprising. I think that now we have this, this psychology of uh, academia where it's all full power all the time and you can hack it or you can't and there's a lot of this attitude that you know psychological illness comes with the comes with the territory comes with the you know being in science the number of uh, fellow phd students that i've spoken to who are talking about you know how how hard a time they're having it and um you know i've also been through now my phd and i had a really hard time um in the end, just finishing up things. I had myself a few breakdowns and um, and I don't know of anyone who probably hasn't just because sometimes it's 
It's tough. And that's just getting the PhD. And as you go on, you know, we have this professor culture as well, where um, people who are advanced into academia are, um, you know, known for having um, really crazy work-life balances. And and, um, and obviously that can have severe, severe effects on personal lives and mental health. I think uh, and, artists um, and scientific illustrators are pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, and yeah. also, I'm going to say that uh, a psychiatric institution in the 19, 1923 is a very scary place to yeah, imagine. Yeah. That must have been yeah. uh, really bad. bad, bad. And, and it's it's understandable that that the the demise followed so so quickly afterwards. I mean, that's four, four or five years. Four or five years. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's yeah. hardly any time at all. That's well, that's terrible. The practices that were done yeah. back then in psychiatric, and I'm doing quotation marks, psychiatric institutions yeah. back then is uh, are super scary. Yeah, um, the things exactly. that they did to people were. Yeah. Ooh. So the nice thing is that the way that uh, that this kind of mental illness is handled today has come forward a lot. Um, but I don't think that it's any less prevalent now than it was in the in the at the turn of the, the 19th to 20th century. Um, so take care of yourselves and your mental health. And, uh, you know, when it's time to call it quits, call it quits. That's that's what I'm that's the message here. Um, but another amazing woman who is foundational to um, to herpetology today. I mean, American Museum of Natural History is famous and has long been famous for their research outputs and for their collection. And um, it's a beautiful collection. I don't my, know if you've ever been, but it's a beautiful collection. I have. Yeah, I, I got to go um, oh a long time ago now, but it's uh, I have fond memories of walking into the yeah. into the main hall because it. At the time, it was very impressive. You know, it strongly reminded me of walking into the Natural History Museum in London as well. I think they had also sort of built on the same um, well, scheme. And it's you get that sense of of, uh, of the history of natural history, I guess you could say. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. it's a very strong connection to that, especially to that 19th century uh, side of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a historical building and um, it, it very houses very, very important collections. And they're doing lots of cool research. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we can move on then to the main discussion. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about spherodactylids. Spherodactylids. So, <laughs> in the last episode, we talked about the largest geckos in the world, or supposedly the heaviest geckos in the world, which are uh, the rachidactylids, or whatever they're called. Um, <laughs> I'll get rid of the whatever they're called bit. Um, <laughs> well, we got into the hoplodactylus, and you know. Yeah, we got into hoplodactylus, which was, of course, the largest gecko that's ever been known. Um, and there's also the, the whole matter of Rachidastylus lichianus. Yes. And whatnot. Now, those were, of course, the heaviest and largest. We go now to the opposite end of the spectrum. We're going to talk about Spherodactylidae, which are also called 
Spheros. Well, I've never <laughs> heard, until today, I've never heard anyone call them Spheros. Sphero- oh, only Spherodactylists are called Spheros. Okay. Yeah. And that's mostly in Germany. And it is that's it, mostly in it, Germany. It has, it has, that's a German thing? No, it has precedence in the scientific literature as well. They, so people who are publishing on Spherodactylus also call them Spheros. Did they say that at the ham show? I'm at sure the they show. did. I'm sure they did. I have never seen them at the ham show, but I will have to look. But they're also known yeah. as, uh, well, each genre has different names, but they're also known as dwarf geckos, pygmy geckos, cloud yeah, micro, geckos. I've always, I've always known them as micro geckos. And they're collectively yeah. known, yeah. usually referred as macro geckos. geckos. Yeah. Things that they're not called gecko lits. Gecko litos. Gecko litos is not bad. <laughs> that would at least be, you know, politically more correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Uh, Gabriel, you want to walk us through the different genera that are within the family Spherodactylidae? Well, first, why we don't say, why we don't why don't we talk about the weird distribution that the family has? Oh yeah, fair. Because, Good um, point. It's uh, the the family has around over two hundred, well over two hundred species. I think it's uh, let me check here at the reptile database. It's two hundred nineteen species. At least 219 species, because several gen- genera of the... Many have not been described. Yeah, there are, and they have continuously been described every year, particularly in neotropical yeah. genera. So um, they are distributed around the Caribbean. Well, we have a species, a native species here in South Florida, the reef gecko. And uh, that's the only spherodactylid in North America. Then we have mm-hmm. the Car- all the West Indies, all the Caribbean islands, Central America, South America... And then we have a species that is that occurs all over the Mediterranean, which used to be until recently, well, relatively recently, part of the believed to be part of the Phylodactylus genus, which is um, I always forget the new Euleptus europea, which is a uh, it's a European leaf. Uh, does does leaf it have toad. a common name? Yeah, I think it's called European European leaf toad gecko. gecko yeah. Okay, not a Mediterranean gecko. No. It looks a lot like a Mediterranean gecko crossed with a not Mediterranean. <laughs> well, no, because he had the, the, what, the reason why it was in the genus Phyllodactyl is because he had the same structure of when they. It has the, 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 very similar the toes. The toe ends okay. up in a triangular leaf shaped uh, expansion oh, on the tip of yeah, the digit. Okay. Each digit has a leaf like triangular yeah. expansion, like it does in Phyllodactylus and other Phyllodactylid. Geckos, but these are a different, complete different family. And when you think about it, that a complete a gecko that was in a complete different family was housing the same genus as uh, another gecko until relatively recently. Because I don't, I don't remember when was that uh, this um, uh, hedges was it uh, Blair, right? Was the one that did the the Bauer Bauer at all in 1997? Yeah, 1997 was when the 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 change of genera occurred. Yeah, and Bauer we mentioned last episode because also he's, he's, the, he's the, the grandfather of geckos. Yeah, he's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there's a very important paper that was published on the um, on the whole of the Spherodactylidae. That's uh, by Tony Gamble, 
et al. in 2007 published in the journal Biogeography entitled Evidence for Gondwanan Vicariants in an Ancient Gecko, Clade of Gecko Lizards. And um, in that, they give a more robust position um, for Euleptes within the phylogeny of the spherodactylids and also relate their distribution to the breakup of Gondwana because it is um, so crazy. Yeah, so, so this is why we have so a, in, a Mediterranean and a Caribbean. And also they're found yeah. in, there are several genera that are found in Africa, Northern Africa, like Morocco and stuff. Right. So um, you have to... So some some geckos that people might be familiar with are Teratoskinkus, which is yeah, which are obviously found in the Middle East, and frog, they uh, are also spherodactyl uh, frog-eyed geckos. Yeah, really? wonder geckos or, 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 or wonder geckos. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, they not they don't look like isn't that crazy? They don't look like that. No, that is crazy. No. Yeah. So really, a lot of morphological variability. Um, within the within the family, a remarkable diversity and a very unusual distribution for for geckos. I was going was to say I normally now now that now that casts what I was going to say into a different. I normally think of them as this as small, diurnal, and oftentimes sexually dimorphic. Well, that's a, that's that's a lot of the new world. Yeah. But if you count all these, uh, the, uh, several of the, like, for example, several of the species, um, like Teratosinkus and Skinkus, and also uh, in the New World, we have Aristigeller in the, Aristig Arist I was messed that up, Aristeliger, which is the uh, uh, West Indies geckos that are nocturnal. They have paths. And they look very mm -hmm. much like geckos, like regular geckos, but they like, are like your yeah. And they are not small; they are largish gecko, you know, regular gecko side. So, and they live in the Caribbean islands, and those are uh, also spherodactylids. So, it's the only New World gen genus that is morphologically nocturnal. so distinctive. No, actually, a lot of them can be nocturnal. Even within one genus, you can have nocturnal and diurnal species, like Gonatodes. Yeah. Some species, yeah. most species are diurnal, but you have right. a few that are nocturnal, and they well, even have a. This is an yeah. Gonatodes is an interesting, very interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but yeah. So the you, <clears throat> apart from those, you have um, Pristurus, which is also widely distributed in Africa, and those look more like the New World spherodactylids in, in shape. They're all, they're smaller. They have one thing is that uh, most. I want to say most of them, or all, um, spherodactylids don't have a lot of tubercules and stuff. Like other geckos tend to have tubercules and a lot of like most um, mm -hmm. spherodactylids tend to be very smooth skin or have large skin, uh, skink-like scales like teratoskinkus. Yeah. I mean, teratoskinkus has... Um really remarkable scales because it they're they're very large it's very similar to gecko lepus they come off um, and they also come off yeah. when you grab them yeah. so it's a conversion evolution of and large fish like that scales. is something that happens among other uh with smaller scales is that a lot of times in gonatodes it happens several times that you grab them and part of the skin comes off as a as a, mm -hmm. a, a predator response and, uh, yeah. 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 
I think um, what most people will associate with the family is obviously the the um, gonotodes because they're so well known. They're known for their very bright colors and their sexual dichromatism. Um, it as as we've already pointed out, it's quite surprising that Teratoskinkus is is within the group. Yeah, because yeah. they just look so completely different. Um, but Spherodactylus in particular is one that I wanted to just talk about for a little bit because uh, the the Spheros, as I'll call them, um, but Spherodactylus uh, contain within them the smallest geckos in the world. Um, so Spherodactylus ariase is generally regarded as probably one of the smallest, if not the smallest, um, gecko in the world. It is really remarkably tiny. And um, for me and for a lot of other people who are interested in miniaturization as a process, it's really fascinating to see how morphology works on these uh, at, at the minimum size, uh, the minimum end of the body size scale. And they still have so, uh, uh, the little, the very small ones, micro geckos have toe pads, correct? Yes, but I, but they are. They, I think they have pads. They do. Spherodactylus yeah. has pads. What happens is that the, the, the claw is displaced laterally, and the the tip is a flattening to an oval shape. But okay. it's not like uh, it don't, they don't have like all the bunch of lamellae that other guys yeah. like. Uh, Just wondering if it if it when you go to miniaturize if that's something that is conserved or not. Well, that's a good question. Well, what I find interesting about uh, Spherodactylus aviasa in particular is that we were talking about how other lizards, when they miniaturize, and other animals like the frogs that Mark described, when they miniaturize, they, they tend to lose digits or they, they just look sometimes weird and stuff. That's not the case with Spherodactylus aviasa, which looks pretty much like any regular Spherodactylus, but tiny. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, I mean, I. Like I said, I usually associate them with the the, the diurnal, small micro geckos. I've always been struck by how how they almost look like little tiny, almost like little day geckos. Like you would, see, you know, the round pupil yeah. and yeah, uh, well, so they have a, a sort of convergence with them a little bit. They do. They mm -hmm. behave in a, in a similar way. And, a, and an interesting thing is, for example, um, Gonatodes, which is probably the most diurnal of them all, because Ceredactylus, most of, a lot of the species tend to be crepuscular. That means that they are active in the afternoon. And they are a lot more secretive than they, they tend to be in the, under the leaf litter or in dark places. Yeah. Gonatodes, most gonatodes are very up there, you know, like they are right in direct sunlight. They are, um, a lot of them are hydrothermic. Right. So it, you see them right there, like active. Right, right. Um, right. And then in, 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 in Venezuela, where there are, it's the place with most gonatodes species. There are gonatodes species in every niche, and they have occupied different kind of niches. In a lot of mm. places, they seem to have um, taken the niche that anolis sometimes take. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of places that don't have anolis, but have gonatodes species covering that niche. Huh, interesting. Um, so you have like species that are saxiculus. You have species that are uh, uh, tree dwellers. You have species that, are, that live in shaded areas. You have species that are, live in um, full sunlight areas, which allows them to partition environments for several species to live in the same uh, habitat. I mean, the same area. 
So they are sympatric but not sympatric, and they have they can live in the same uh, area without occupying each other's niche. So you have species in the shade while others in the in the full sunlight. You have species in the uh, rocks while the other ones are in the tree trunks. So are they uh, are they parthenogenic? Uh, no, gonatodes or no? No gonatodes. I'm trying to think of any other. Sterodactyly that is parthenogenic. I cannot think because a lot of them are actually, especially in the New World, a lot of them are tend to have a strong sexual uh, chromatism, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. chromatism. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we should talk about. It's, uh, in Sterodact- even here, for people that are familiar that have been down here in Florida, we have the reef gecko, which is a, a, a native one, and we also have two species uh, introduced of Sterodactylus which is the oscillated ashy gecko, which is Spherodactylus argus, and Spherodactylus oscillatus, which is the oscillated gecko. They also, Spherodactylus, tend to be um, sexually dimorphic, not as strongly as uh, gonatodes, but they do have, like sometimes they have ocelli that are more marked or they have a a pattern that is bolder in the male than in the female. And of course, a lot of Spherodactylids have what is called the scutcheon uh, area, where they have like a, an area on the in the belly scales that are larger and often colored differently. It's called the scutcheon. I don't know exactly if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I don't know how it's pronounced, but yeah. Um, and, and so in gonatode, sometimes those, in, in Sferodactylus too, sometimes those areas can be brightly colored or, or black, like jet black. Sometimes with a shine, with a blue shine, and it mm. looks very different. It obviously used during display. Um, a lot of yeah. gonatodes also have bright patterns on their throat because they do certain movements with their throats and their tail when they're displaying. That's yeah. poorly known. There's very few yeah. studies done on the visual display. I think some some fascinating stuff about the the gonatodes. Um, in addition to um, the sexual dichromatism we also sometimes have adult and juvenile coloration dimorphism ashy geckos in particular uh are the the juveniles look like they're wearing pajamas they're striped, striped right beautiful, yep. yeah beautiful striped pajamas and the adults are then sort of a dull brown yep um and also the i think the eyesight of the the gonatodes and cerodactylus uh, is fascinating because they do have uh, a remarkable degree of binocularity to their eyesight. So when you take photographs of Spherodactylus, um, the photos sometimes get this sort of weird, eerie look because the gecko, if you're used to photographing a felsuma, for example, where both eyes are decidedly lateral, um, and you're photographing it sort of from a three-quarters angle from the front, one eye is looking at you and the other one is sort of looking where it always looks. Whereas if you photograph one of these spherodactylus or gonatodes from the front, both of the eyes are looking straight at you and you get this very strange, uh, strange feeling um, from those pictures. Yeah. So they have a remarkable degree of binocularity in their hunting, uh, in, in their vision and presumably then relevant to, to their hunting ability. I don't know how good their vision is, but I, I guess it must be quite good. And I think they also have some degree of independent eye movement ability, so somewhat chameleon-esque yeah. in terms of their a, visibility. So they're, they are almost they're a gecko attempting to do an anole impression. They have, uh, yes. <laughs> a little and, bit. And, and, and 
you have that other, that, that's one part of the family in the Neotropics yeah. with gonatoris and that, but you have the other part, the part that lives in the, in the leaf litter that are very uh, cryptic and they, they are very uh, uh, inconspicuous and you hardly ever see them and it's hard to find them. Uh, like Chatogecko, Coleodactylus, Pseudogonatodes, which live in the leaf litter and they're very um, cryptically colored. It's like the, or Lepidoblepharis, a lot of Lepidoblepharis also do that, although there are some colored Lepidoblepharis. Um, and, and in the case of Chatogecko, everybody must have, must remember seeing these documentaries about uh, the Amazon rainforest where it starts raining and these geckos, is poor little thing is like being bombarded oh, yeah. by gigantic. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. BBC. That's Chato Gecko. That's the Amazon pygmy gecko. And it's very, very tiny. So tiny that they that it goes sometimes over the surface of water without sinking yeah. because it doesn't break the tension surface. The surface They've, tension. Yeah, they, yeah. I, that was on, I think it was on one of the planet Earth or something like that, wasn't it? It where, was, yeah. yeah. It, they also, they have the gecko and it's, their it's scales, like smaller than an ant. <laughs> and their scales repel water. If you see a lot of, a lot of uh, small yeah. spherodactylids had this velvet shine to them due to the scales because the scales are have if you see they have yeah, a microstructure yeah, and yeah. when you see them they look bluish sometimes when you put them in the light because they have this shine yeah. of velvet like shine of dog mm-hmm. and it's actually true most gecko scales are um are water repellent yeah. um, but i i do think that it's uh, somehow enhanced in these tiny geckos where surface tension is a real problem yeah. If you're, you know, if every water drop you have to actually fight to get away from, you're going to have some serious difficulties navigating a rainforest. Especially, exactly. Especially not not recommended. Especially when you're in a rainforest, yeah. especially <laughs> Chatogeco lives in flooded rainforest. So it's even worse because it, has, it yeah, lives in, in rainforests that tend to flood. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that Gonatoris is particularly interesting because you have species that are diurnal and have a complete round pupil. And then you have species yep. that are nocturnal, like Gonatodes antillensis, which has a vertical or elliptical pupil. And it, it, it's, it's so much so that for a long time, Gonatodes antillensis was uh, considered a different genus. It was Gymnodactylus um, because mm-hmm. of that pupil. But it's, it's, it's yeah. nested deep within... Yeah. Just proves, yep. yeah. It just it just goes to show how quickly the shape of the pupil can actually change depending on um, uh, habit. Yep. And um, did this? Yeah, this change when we when we started learning more about the phylogeny through genetic research and stuff like that. I yes, guess, that, well, the, because the, you're only going by morphology. Otherwise, well, even with yeah. morphology, this was done a long time ago by a famous Venezuelan herpetologist. That his focus was, uh, his name was Rivero, and his focus was, he did a really good, amazing thesis about uh, Gonatotis. And he basically, most of what we know about Gonatotis was done by him. Uh, and and he was the one who, you know, reclassified uh, Antillensis mm-hmm. as a Gonatotis. A long time ago, I think it was done in the 70s or 60s. But um, yeah. but now with, with genetics, we know that Antiensis is nested with deep within Gonatotis. And it's not, you know, it's at some point in the evolution of Gonatotis, they decided to go back, in, especially because Antiensis lives in a very um, arid island. Uh, so it is yeah. probably a lot of, makes a lot of sense to try to sh- take shelter from the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So it reminds me a lot of the the Felsuma. So within Felsuma, there is the one species, um, Felsuma gigas, the giant day gecko, uh, the the Rodriguez giant day gecko. Oh, not grandis, um, cons- but uh, not grandis. Considerably larger than grandis, okay. hence gigas, um, which were apparently nocturnal. And then there's also Felsuma guntheri, which is found on Round Island which is also seemingly nocturnal and also has a vertical pupil, which is another demonstration of the, you know, so there, rapidity with which yeah, these, yeah. So there these are fel- day geckos can become night geckos. There's felsumids with vertical pupils. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, interesting. Isn't and, it? And even, even in Spherodactylus, the pupil of Spherodactylus is not compre- completely... Uh, rounded, like in Gonatodas. Gonatodas has a round people, but it's some most of them. But Sferodactylus yeah. tends to have an elli- more elliptical you know, on the, under certain light conditions. This is the thing that a lot of times the pupil shape is a lot more variable, and it depends on the white light con- what light condition you are looking well, at. Yeah, it, yeah. Because it can change yeah. a lot. The, the pupil of Sferodactylus can become quite elliptical under certain light conditions. Well, even I mean, you're right. Even and even geckos that we think of as vertically pupiled geckos in the dark yeah when they're active at night they're totally round yeah they look like i mean it's just like cats i mean it's the same thing Uh (laughs) the pupil opens up to let more light in and they look totally different yeah exactly okay what else do we what else do we have to talk about in spherodactylids well there's also a lot of variation like in all geckos of course the structure of the Topad is super viable, and there are all kinds of variation here, like I, like you we were saying earlier. And one of the things is that some of them, like um, uh, I think Lepidoblepharis, but I know for sure Coleodactylus and Chatogecko have retractile. Uh, so the 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 uh, claws are yeah. retractile within an ungual sheath. So there's a sheath that it almost looks like a bean, like a mm-hmm. round bean that is housing the claw. <laughs> Right? Yeah. So, have you huh. uh, so, have you ever seen um, a Halmahera gecko's feet? The uh, um, what's it saying? Gehira. Oh yeah. Gehira marginata, and the the they have that too, where the the pad it goes way further than the actual claw, and the claw like basically sprouts up at a ninety degree yeah. angle and comes out well, yeah. like a, a sickle. A lot of geckos have that, but in this case, the whole claw is enclosed within this bean like structure and okay. and it, it, the bean like structure is it's only at the tip of the of the of the digit and depending of how many uh, scales uh, that's one of the diagnostic characteristics of some genera is how many scales form that being that ongual sheath which is the bean like structure that I tell you about so depending of the, the how, foot the foot nubbin yeah so as you know as uh, the, the, the diagnosis of many genera of geckos is you'll always Heavily based on this on the digit structure, and uh, that's the mm-hmm. same case for Sphenodactylus. Gonatodes is particular in which where the claw is completely free, and they have no toe pads expanded. The, the the digits are not expanded at all. They have lamellae. The lamellae under the f- digits are not expanded. They have claws like any other lizard. They free claws like any other mm-hmm. lizard, no expansion whatsoever. That doesn't um, mean that they are not amazing arboreal or sexicalous. Animals, they are very much 
but they don't have they cannot cling to completely smooth surfaces. Yeah, don't they? They scrabble yeah. around on 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 rock, uh, on rocks, on lot, trees, right? yeah. and like I said, like they have different yeah types of environment. Yeah. So uh, Gabriel, what I wanted to know is, are they? Ever or gonatodes ever really above head height in terms of their branch yep. occupation? Sometimes, depending on the species, like uh, 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 some species are a lot of the species tend to be on the base of the trunk, but some other can climb yeah. high. And like mm -hmm. I've, I have observed, uh, I don't know if let me see if that species is described yet or not. No, there's a described species in the in the island of Margarita that I have observed that it can climb up to four meters above ground. Um, okay, and, you know they in, in and also what what is cool about them is that different species sometimes use different uh, uh, trees of different widths. So certain right. certain species yeah. prefer narrower tree trunks and other species prefer you know, wider tree trunks. So the way they segment the, mm -hmm. the environment is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're really interesting. Um, I mean, if we're talking about day geckos, the parallel in mainland Africa and also in Madagascar is not so much the felsuma, which are enormous day geckos by comparison, but Ligodactylus, and even in Ligodactylus, you have, especially in mainland Africa, lots of different species that have similar sort of oscillated spots or bright, bright colors. And it's really crazy how similar they really are. Ligo, um, and Ligodactylus also have claws, unlike and, Felsuma. And sexual dimorphism. Yes. Some, yes. Well, I yes. was thinking of William's, uh, William's eye. The, yeah, Williamsy is obviously a, a particular yeah. um, case, but yeah, there are some that that look really with, um, with the, very gonatodes. Like. Yeah, I was going to say those, those are the males of those are like neon blue, like they're yeah. All, almost yeah. all gonatodes have strong sexual dichromatism. Some uh, species have less sexual dichromatism, uh, but most of them have very very strong. And if people are not familiar with gonatode species, I would advise you to Google them because there are some, for me, some of the most beautiful geckos. We'll have some illustrations maybe yes. of yours if you give us permission it, on the uh, show. Yes, yes. And if you Google it, that's going to appear there, sure. I'm sure too. My illustrations are yeah, going to appear. Also. But there are some, they are, they tend to be coloring reds and yellows mostly it's like yeah. the oranges the, i was gonna say, the classic one that i think of when we were talking about this is the is the yellow-headed one the male yellow-headed uh is it just called a yellow-headed well yeah the, the, uh, uh, yeah but that yeah the problem with like with everything the taxonomy of a lot of these things is complicated and there are yeah. there are a lot of species that are either non-described yet haven't been described yet or um uh, they are like Albogularis, which is this yellow-headed gecko, is yeah. a, probably a composite of several species. I think Fuscus, which is, I think is already, most people consider a separate species, but sometimes it's included still under as, as a sort of species of, mm. of Albogularis. The same with Spherodactylus. Yeah. Now, the cool thing about Spherodactylus, which we go, is that some species of Spherodactylus have adapted. So Spherodactylus also live in different parts. Some species of Ferdactylus live high in the trees, 
in bromeliads. So there's uh, mm. there, there's actually a, even a species called Ferdactus heliconiae, which is lives in heliconias and stuff like that. And um, there are some species can be very arboreal. Uh, they tend mm. to be more arboreal than gonatodes in some cases. Interesting. So, yeah. So that that's a uh, mm. that's that's one of the things that is interesting about Ferdactus. And that the smallest species of uh, spherodactylids, which are also the smallest species of geckos in the world, I think they're all at least terrestrial or um, or leaf litter dwellers, I right? So, so yeah. there might be some association in terms of ecology between the transition to becoming very very small and also becoming um, leaf litter dwellers. That would which would fit also with what we know about frogs yeah. and, and chameleons. Yeah, and chameleons. Yeah, so of, yeah, Bruxia yeah. tends to be leaf litter kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah but Bruxia are the oldest of the lineages, so you can like. Who knows? <laughs> are they? <laughs> were they ancestrally uh, leaf litter dwellers, or were they? Um, did they become smaller as they became more leaf littery? Um, it's a difficult question to answer. I'm working on it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the last point that I would like to bring up in terms of spherodactylids is the group that, at least that I know, that is working most on um, spherodactylids as a whole, especially Gonotodes and, and spherodactylids itself, is the Gamble Lab. So Tony Gamble, mm. who is based at Marquette University, um, they are doing, uh, Marquette is in, uh, Wisconsin. They're doing all kinds of really cool stuff with geckos. And I know that he is breeding, uh, numerous different species for various different projects, looking at, uh, uh, uh chromosomes, genomes, um, phylogenetics, systematics, all kinds of really interesting stuff. Was he, so was... if you are really interested in the spherodactylids, um, and especially gonatodes and spherodactylus, uh, go and hit up Tony. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Tony underscore Gamble One. Don't forget the underscore, um, where he also tweets from conferences and stuff. So, yeah. Okay, uh, Gabriel, any last things you want to say about the spherodactylids before we move I on? I think we cover the basics of the family pretty well. Yeah, I think so too. So, uh, the penultimate section or sort of the ultimate section of the show is the bit where we talk about questions from lizard nerds. And we only really have one that we're going to address uh, now. There are a few that are in the queue that we will get to later, but, um, you know, in a future episodes. But this was uh, an email from Emily O'Brien, who said very nice things and said... She'd like to hear a general discussion about snake cognition and reptile cognition uh, because it's an interesting and difficultly difficult thing. I think we've touched a little bit already on frog cognition um, today, but uh, in all honesty, this is not really something that we can answer here. Uh, we're going to devote an episode to it in the future. I can't promise when, 
But it's on our slate uh, of stuff that we want to talk about. It's on our slate and it's high on the list. It's just that we know, or I know at least, so little about reptile cognition. I'd like to buff up a little bit on the literature before diving in and yeah. trying to tackle Same. the topic. We have to we have um, to read more and also there's uh, there's not like a ton that have been done on it, but we have to there's not a ton yeah, of literature. But we have but we yeah, have to we have to yeah. refresh our well, yeah, and yeah, I mean, there's the, I we got into this off air too, but there's a, there is a, there was a paper out about bearded dragons and observational learning, was in the last yeah. few years, um, stuff like that. I think is something yeah. we want to talk about. Yeah, and the trouble with these papers is is that they so often contain uh, such incredible jargon and uh, and abbreviations that it becomes unintelligible to try and make heads or tails of them. And so, I mean, anecdotally, it's a I trained axolotls to eat out of a dish. So I don't know if that counts. <laughs> well, they're not they're not reptiles, are they? No, so no. doesn't answer doesn't answer Emily's question. What are you thinking, even? Come on. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say so, what I said earlier in the episode, in, in that my, my general answer is that uh, it's sort of the Douglas Adams dolphin thing where it's, you know, we, we don't really know much of anything about what other yeah. animals are thinking or how we they're thinking. We have a hard time figuring out how smart animals are. Yeah. Right. That's true. That we invented New York. Right. We invented New York and they think that, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Emily, for your question. Sorry that we're not going to deal with it this time around. <laughs> so long. Um, and so long, and thanks, thanks for, for all the fish. fish. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you too, dear listener, lizardner, can submit us such questions that we will then go on to answer. not answer <laughs> by sending us emails at squamatespot at gmail.com. We love it when you do that, so please do it more um and actually that pretty much wraps it up so we can lead in very nicely to the outro and in doing so ethan where can one find you on the internet uh i am at black mud puppy on most uh, everywhere and uh i also run nudist n-e-w-t-i-s-t dot com and blackmudpuppy.com Excellent. Gabriel? And, uh, you can find me on most social media at, at Serpent Illus uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, on Facebook, and under Gabriel Ugeto Art. And you can find my website at gabrielugeto.com. And I will be soon be on the Common Descent podcast, so you can listen to that as well. Yeah, check that out. Uh, you can find me at Mark Shirts. Shirt spelled S-E-H-E-R-Z, Mark with a K, um, pretty much all over the internet. Uh, so just look up that handle and you'll find me on Twitter and on my website, markshirts.com, and uh, Instagram and everything. And, you know, I also got that new Harry Potter game, whatever it's called. Um, so, Are you yeah. going to put your friend uh, code in the show notes? <laughs> I might, I might. <laughs> if you want to befriend me, hit me up. Um, 
I'm bad at these games, but oh well, I, I like to try. Um, more importantly, you can follow the podcast uh, on all of your desired podcast management man- management apps. Um, but you can also always find our very extensive show notes and bibliography at squamatespod.com. You can follow us on Twitter, please, at Twitter. <laughs> at Twitter. <laughs> follow us on Twitter, please, at squamatespod. On Facebook, squamatespod. We're at Instagram at squamatespod. You can email us, as I've already said, squamatespod at gmail.com. And... As we say on the show, Hakuna Skrubba!